and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode with a great guest. I'm excited for you to meet him. But before we introduce him, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So if this is your first time here, welcome. If you've been here before, then you know that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication, labeling skills like self-talk, which we're going to talk about in today's conversation. When you label stuff like self-talk as soft, it devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last October in 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. We actually referenced today's guest inside Shift Your Mind. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased the book, and I've really been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your continued support. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach. Thanks to all of you who have continued to support the podcast and have gone over to iTunes and written us a review. Let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Ethan Cross is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. As I mentioned earlier, he was actually referenced inside my book, and he has a book out called Chatter. Chatter is one of the best books I've ever read. It is a quick read. You will fly through it. And it is a highlighter book. You will be able to highlight research and stories and anecdotes that you can apply to your life, to your career, or wherever you have self-talk and thoughts that may be defeating or getting in the way of your performance and your ability to show up. A little more about Ethan. He's an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan. He teaches both in their top-ranked psychology department and in their Ross School of Business. He's a researcher. He's also the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. Ethan has participated in policy discussion at the White House. He's been interviewed about his research on CBS, Good Morning America, Anderson Cooper, NPR, the list goes on and on. Ethan and his work, it really is incredible, and he's gotten acknowledged for it. He's been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, the New England Journal of Medicine and Science. Ethan is somebody who is at the forefront of psychology, and he does the work as far as research goes, and he's also able to apply it to your life in multiple ways. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Ethan Cross. 
Ethan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've actually been a fan of your work before you wrote Chatter, which was great and highly recommend people get the book if they haven't already. Um, but your work around third person self-talk was something that made its way into my computer, onto my desk, whatever we'll call it these days. Um, and, and so we're going to talk about that today, but I actually was having a conversation with an executive client uh, last week. And he said to me, Brian, I can control my thoughts. And so we got into a little bit of a discussion around what you can control and what you can. And um, so I wanted to bring you into that conversation. Uh, so if you had somebody say to you, hey, Ethan, like, I know I can control my thoughts. How would you respond to them? Uh, I would say that's a great attitude to have. Um, I would say if you want to drill down into the specifics, it probably depends on what facet of our thoughts we're talking about. So if you ask me, are people capable of controlling their thoughts? Well, I don't think we can control the thoughts that pop into our head. So, you know, you're walking down the street and something just occurs to you right out of nowhere. Maybe it's a, a dark thought that you're ashamed of. Maybe it's a positive thought. Um, based on what I know about the human mind and psychology, I have, I have yet to come across a body of research that tells me how to predict what someone is going to think about. So I don't think we can control the thoughts that pop into our head, but what we do have enormous control over is how we engage with those thoughts, uh, the meaning we attach to them, whether we elaborate on them, whether we do so in ways that are beneficial or harmful to us. And that's really where the psychological playground exists, right? Once a thought is there, what do you do with it? And so that's a useful, um, distinction that that I apply when trying to make sense of this question of how much control do you actually have over your thinking and and I guess the one thing I would add to this is it's interesting to me because when you pose this question to different people sometimes they some people think it applies to the thoughts that pop into your head other people think that it applies to how you engage with them so I think kind of clarifying the terrain can be very useful yeah. And I, I try to simplify and dumb things down as much as possible if for no other reason than for myself. Um, and, I'm with you. and so I always thought about it. It's an interesting way to say it as thinking versus thoughts and that thoughts come and go, and we don't necessarily know always where they come from. You mentioned dreams in the book. I've always been fascinated by dreams. I feel like we still don't have enough research on dreams. Like there's still a Pandora's box that that we're, we're, we still have to explore, but um, thoughts to me are the random things that pop in our head. Whereas thinking is more intentional. It's an interpret. You can interpret your thoughts with your self-talk and the way you think Does thoughts and thinking, does that distinction work for you? Or is that too simplistic and in, in nature? No, no, I think, I think if you, if you define, define those two in those ways, it works. It, it all depends on how you, I think some people might use the term thinking to refer to the whole kit and caboodle. And then, you know, there's, is there unconscious thinking? So, but I think as long as you're really clear in what you mean by those words, then that distinction makes a great deal of sense. Um, so. Cool. And then let's go to the body a little bit, because one of the things that I thought you did a great job with in the book is talk about emotion and feelings and I come from a, a sports world where my training I felt was heavily cognitive behavioral and was heavily, hey, our thoughts dictate our behavior or our, our mind dictates, dictates our behavior. But there's this whole other element of emotion and feeling. So I'd love for you to expand and, and talk about feelings and how feelings can drive behavior and how emotions can play a role in, in how we show up. Well, I think, you know, feel... Um emotions uh, are, you could think of them as these, as these different programs that govern the way we operate. And they are remarkably effective at getting us to behave in particular ways. So if I experience the emotion of anger, right, a program has launched, my brain launches a program, it, it extends to every corner of my body. And, and that program is quickly orienting me to be in a, in a state of approach or avoid because there's a potential threat out there. Um, there's been a transgression against me and I need to know how to respond. Anxiety is another one of those programs you can load up that's very powerfully 
orienting you ideally in a way that puts you in a position to succeed in the specific situation you're in. So that's another important element of emotions. Emotions are, are tightly linked to the context in which we're in, in most cases. And so, so they're getting us ready to prepare for whatever card life is dealing with us. Now, sometimes those emotions can run awry. They are powerful programs that impact us and sometimes they can be triggered too strongly. Uh, alternatively, the program can, be re can remain active too long. So you continue to feel angry even when you shouldn't. And that's really the situation where a lot of the work that my students and colleagues and I do comes into play. When the emotions aren't serving you well anymore, what can you do to realign, to get that experience back on track, to help you be successful in whatever situation you're in? Um, and so it's sometimes, you know, when you study self and emotion control, sometimes people think, Hey, you want to just rid us of emo? Do you, do you just try to like get rid of emotions or emotions of that thing for decades? People thought emotions just get in the way. Couldn't be further from the truth. What we want to do is, is figure out what are the mental mechanics that explain how we can manage our emotions so as to allow people to, to live skillfully with those experiences. So you wouldn't want to get rid of emotions. You want to figure out how to harness them. Let's stay there for a second, because I think the same thing about thoughts. In the sports world, athletes will tell me all the time, Brian, I play my best when I'm not thinking. Like, there's no thought there. And then I'm sitting there watching Tom Brady, and I'm thinking, oh, he's thinking. He's processing. Um, like I was watching, we're recording this on a Tuesday and I was watching Monday night football last night and you have the Manning brothers talking to Tom Brady and then they had drew Brees. So you have, you know, a hall of fame, elite level quarterbacks. Um, so you mentioned that for a long time, we said emotions would get in the way. I think the same thing can apply for thoughts is that thoughts can often get in the way of us being able to execute. So on the thought side of it, I had a division one athlete say to me, Brian, like, I don't want to think at all. And I was sort of like challenging him a little bit on that. I said, what would it look like if you didn't think as you're playing basketball? And so we had a, an interesting discussion in that lens. So on the thought side of it or the thinking side of it, how do we know when it's serving us and when it's getting in the way? And how do we know if we're overloading on thoughts or under indexing on thoughts? Um, how do you think about that? Well, um, let's break that down. There's a couple of great questions there. So in terms of when it's getting in the way, I think usually when you're on the, on the sports field, it becomes apparent because you're not performing optimally. And so that, that, that's one cue. If you're not sinking the, the free throws or, or not, not hitting the receiver in the end zone, right? Because you're distracted, your mind is somewhere else. That's not a good thing. Uh, I've had the experience on a few occasions where uh, I was supposed to, I was trying to be present at, in a conversation or in, a, in an engagement, but my mind was somewhere else. And that can be incredibly distracting and undermining. That's one of the ways that, that what I call chatter, getting stuck in those negative thought loops, ruminating and worrying, that's one of the ways that that undermines people's performance in, in pretty significant ways. With respect to this question of, is there, is there a time and place where you don't wanna be thinking? Uh, I think there is actually. And so I think we don't want to, we can think of the mind as having different capacities. We can think, we can feel, we can talk to ourselves. These are all useful processes, right? But what determines whether we are functioning optimally is whether we're engaging those processes in the right way at the right time. So let's take thinking as an example. If you are dribbling down the soccer field, football field, whatever you want to call it, um, you don't want to be, and, and you've got a fast break and, and you want to shoot, you know, shoot on goal or it's basketball, right? You don't want to be thinking, hey, am I, am I pressing the ball with the right pressure with my fingertips? You're executing habits there, skills that you have built up, complicated skills that you've built up over years and years and years that don't require conscious thinking. You can just execute them automatically. And that is what makes us so incredibly successful on many sports ball fields, right? That ability to, to do things without thinking. Uh, there are studies which show if you get, a, get like, for example, a soccer player 
In one case, in the lab, you bring them in, you ask them to dribble. In one case, you ask them to think about the different parts to their dribbling motion. So are they hitting the ball with the right part of their foot as opposed to thinking about something else entirely? If you cue a person to focus on the behavior, it unravels, they do worse. This is what happened, I think, to Simone Biles in the Olympics this past summer with the twisties. The twisties are another name for, for chatter, for overthinking things. And it is a significant issue, as I think her experience demonstrates. What Simone Biles typically does on the gym, in the gymnastics arena is remarkable. She's engaging in these incredibly complicated routines, these you know somersaults linked with twists and gyrations and all these other handsprings that she normally does without thinking. The moment her conscious mind activates in those contexts, it all unravels and can become very dangerous. So we call this paralysis by analysis and, um, and you want to avoid it. Now, the disclaimer to all of this is, this doesn't mean that athletes should never think. There's a time and place to think. Uh, in practice, for example, when your habit is not serving you well, if your free throw is off, that's when you want to, hey, let's like open up the hood and figure out what part is off and try to optimize the process there. But you don't want to do that in the NBA finals with two seconds on the clock and you're down by a bucket. Yeah. I wrote a whole book on mindset for preparation being different than your mindset for performance. So analysis and preparation, instinct and performance. So that resonates with me. I'm going to, I'm going to let's push, push the ball down a little bit further here on this subject, because I think it's really interesting. Gymnastics is a close-ended sport meaning Simone Biles is doing the same thing every single time she gets on the balance beam. She's trying to get a 10 or whatever the number is, and she's trying to execute the same thing. She doesn't need strategy in those moments. But let's use soccer, for example. A, a penalty kick in soccer is very different. It's closed, um, even though there's a goalie. There's no defense running at the player. There's not a person making a run. But most of soccer is played with you know, do I pass backwards? Do I pass forwards? Do I pass side to side? Do I dribble myself? There's constant decision-making going on that is open-ended. And I think a lot of our lives are more open-ended than they are close-ended. Sure, there are times where we just need to execute one thing at one time, but for a lot of us, we need to be strategic thinkers, especially leaders. And so I want to stay on this subject because once again, I was listening to the Manning brothers talk about being in the pocket in football and how they were watching a quarterback last night and he was struggling to just slide one step left or shuffle his feet to the right to give himself more time. And instead he was just panicked. And so I think my perspective is it's somewhat of a combination of both. It becomes instinctive to notice slide left, to feel the pressure. And I think there's some thinking going on there that is strategic. Okay. This person is, going to the left. I've got the read. Okay. Now they're covered. All right. Now I need to go to the right. Same thing in soccer. I need to go back here. I need to go forward, but I haven't been able to discover like, what is that strategic thinking that next level thinking that still doesn't get in the way of me looking at the ball, thinking that I have to kick it, the choking mechanisms that you talked about earlier. There's something else there though, that allows people to be strategic, but not over-index on thinking. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think a lot of that. So first of all, there are like, there are levels to all of this. I completely agree. Um, I think what you have, you have intuitions operating that are honed over many, many, you know, um, hours of practice that are guiding people to have those intuitions to slide left, fall back, run the ball. The key is that they are not like stopping to weigh the pros and cons very carefully in, in a grid. Hey, should I slide left here or should I go back? That thinking is occurring so rapidly based on their experiences that allows them to execute it seamlessly. I mean, you're talking about millisecond decisions occurring, right? That's really fast. So is thinking taking place? You know, this brings us back to whether the term thinking is the right term to use. There's certainly cognitive processing taking place. There's making sense of patterns. There's pattern recognitions. There is drawing from the past and, and how past experiences have informed us. What listeners, what I think is important to remember is that the brain operates really, really quickly. Like we're talking about 
electricity here in terms of how neurons are operating. And, and, and these, these, you know, how do you determine, for example, when you're walking, whether to lift your leg a little higher or not when you get to a big step? How do you determine whether to step over the crack in the street or not? Those computations are occurring rapidly, right? That you don't have to exert conscious thought to make it. And I think the same thing is happening on the ball field in these cases. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a room sometimes for, for that deliberate thought. Take your soccer example again. Let's say you've got a penalty kick. Um, I'm sure there's some soccer players who just get up there and, and go. But I think a lot of soccer players, and I could say this speaking as a former soccer player, that not a very good one, I should give the caveat, but um, nonetheless, as someone who, who knows how to dribble and, and did do some damage in high school, I would make a decision when I got to that penalty kick line and say, all right, I'm gonna go left upper corner. And then the moment I made that judgment, I'm back to just doing my thing, shutting the brain off. Uh, I used to wrestle in high school and I remember the first wrestling match we ever had, it was a, a team that was known for doing this one move. Like all the players did it. And, and if they get you in this move, you're, you're done. It's like, there's, there, you know, it's over. And so we learned right before that wrestling match, the first one I ever did, the, the counter to that. The one thing you could do is called the mouse trap procedure. You're trapping the mouse. And I remember throughout that first match, when I wasn't paralyzed with fear, I would repeat it myself, look out for the mouse, look, you know, look out for the mousetrap. Look, and I and I did it and I won. That was my conscious mind activating there, right? So so yes, there's a, a time and a place to shift away from just autopilot to more thinking mode, but it is a very narrow space, I think, when we're talking about the professional sports uh, or or just sports more generally. I love how you talk about keys, cues, pattern recognition, and it leads to, all right, what are you doing in preparation to make sure that you can have those when you need them? One of the things I loved about your book was that you were willing to share your own challenges. Uh, the Spoiler alert here, but it's, I feel like with nonfiction, you can't really spoil a nonfiction. Um, but, you know, we start with you gripping a baseball bat and, and being anxious, and um, we end with you sort of referencing that as well. And it's interesting because you mentioned earlier that anxiety uh, in context really matters, that it's not necessarily good or bad. It depends on the context. And then in the book, you also talk about chronic anxiety and stress and how that can debilitate people. But anxiety and introspection, let's just focus on those two. It's interesting because I just went on a golf trip with my friends and they all give me shit because they are like, Brian, you're, you're hard on yourself. You need to practice what you preach. And I say to them, I'm like, I'm human. I, I, I do practice what I preach and I can't help that my golf swing isn't as smooth as yours, which all, by the way, impacts our performance. But I'm curious for you, um, when you were going through that panic that you were going through and fear and severe anxiety, how do you think about that as an quote unquote expert? Like, how do you, when people approach you and say, well, Ethan, you're an expert, you're supposed to know how to handle something like that. And, and you're not, how do you handle that? Well, uh, I, I tell them about some research we've done in my lab, which I think totally addresses this question. And I love this work. It's called Solomon's Paradox. Uh, a former student of mine, Igor Grossman, I published this paper about six years ago. And we call it Solomon's Paradox. It's, it's a phenomenon named after the Bible's King Solomon, who was known and is still known as being one of the paragons of wisdom. This was a, a, a guy who people traveled to talk to from all over the world because he was so wise, right? He knew how to navigate the challenges of life. But if you actually look at his own life, he was a total disaster in terms of the decisions he made. This is true not about him. Um, there's a great story about Abraham Lincoln that I tell in the book where, um, you know, Lincoln was um, uh, totally overcome with, um, with, with sadness and didn't know what to do, really struggled endlessly. A friend came to him with the same issues, totally was able to counsel him through the situation. What this speaks to, I think, is a very common experience, which is we are much um, wiser when it comes to other people than ourselves, right? Do as I say, not as I do. Very famous expression that most of us know. So um, 
it's easier for us when we've got distance from a problem to weigh in objectively. And when the problems are happening to us, we often lack that distance. And so we can, as a result, be victim to some of the same kinds of problems that we counsel others on. So I think there's nothing really hypocritical about that. I think the only the descriptor I would give to that is being human. I think it is a feature of the human condition. Um, that's not to say we can't always do better when it comes to managing ourselves effectively, but uh, you know, show me the perfect, um, the perfect trainer, the perfect psychologist, like haven't met him yet. Yeah. I love the imperfection and it speaks to, I work with salespeople who become sales managers and what they need as a sales manager is different than what they needed to be great at sales or an athlete who then wants to become a coach and what they need to be a great coach is different than when they need to be an athlete or a lawyer who's a high producer and a performer, but then their partner and then they're asked to mentor people and they're not necessarily able to do that. When you talk to people in business or um, in those instances, what advice or thoughts do you have for them as they're looking to promote and think about what makes a great leader and manager when it comes to uh, the requirements and, and help for unlocking potential in others? I mean, a lot of the conversations I have with leaders and, and folks in the business um, sector revolve around concepts of self-leadership, which is increasingly being recognized as uh, a critically important attribute uh, for leaders. And so the idea is how do, you, how do you manage yourself and in turn manage those around you, right? If you're not managing yourself effectively, it doesn't usually go well for your, for your team. And, and so that brings us into a conversation about chatter and, and experience of being overcome by emotion. And the first point I like to convey is, hey, if you're a leader and you've experienced chatter, if you've got stuck in that negative fault, if you're worried, you're ruminating about something that's distracting, that's influencing your mood, welcome to the human condition. Like this is an incredibly common experience. Uh, I have yet to meet. Uh, a, a top leader who doesn't experience it from time to time. Actually, oftentimes, the higher up I go in terms of the folks I speak to, the more chatter there is, the more there is often at stake. So if you experience it, I think just understanding that this is part and parcel of what it means to be human and to have to make difficult decisions, I think that's really important. And the second thing I try to do is make clear that, hey, there's a there's a giant toolbox of techniques that exist for helping us manage our emotions effectively that evolution has endowed us with. Now we don't get taught in, in school where those tools are. A big part of why I wrote Chatter was to share that information with folks out there um, in the world, not just have it be something that scientists talk about amongst themselves. Uh, that can be fun, but you know, you talk to six people. So, um, so there's a lot of different tools and, and, you know, the, the idea is if you know where those tools are and how they work, they're often really easy to use and you can then try to become skillful and in incorporating these tools in your life and then sharing them with your teams, which uh, the data would suggest the better off we are at managing our emotions at work, not, that doesn't mean not feeling emotions, but managing them, reining in our worry responses the more productive we will be, the happier we will be, the healthier we will be. So I think the, the stakes here are quite high. It's interesting on self-management, you got access to one of the all-time self-management experiments, the marshmallow test or delayed gratification test. And I had a, a meeting this morning with my son's teacher, my son's in kindergarten. I know you have kids as well. And we actually did the marshmallow test with our kids um, we didn't video them. We didn't put it on YouTube. Um, but it's just interesting watching the delayed gratification piece. Um, as a parent, you mentioned, you know, in schools and wanting to get this, these techniques and these ideas into our school system. It's interesting. Our call this morning, Growth and Fixed Mindset by Carol Dweck came up in our conversation, which is fascinating to, to see. And the teacher looked at me, she's like, are you a teacher? I was like, no, but I, I study this stuff. Um, so when you think about our school system and, and raising kids, obviously you've got kids of your own. What are you trying to impart in them to help them be the best versions of, them, of themselves or to delay gratification or to create self-management tools within themselves? Well, you know, I'm teaching them 
whenever possible and hopefully not in, in too boring or pedantic a way um, about, about how the mind works. You know, we teach kids about how the world works because we think knowing about how to navigate the world is a really important thing, right? You teach your kids how to talk with strangers, how to talk with other people, how to be respectful. You know, how do you navigate a new environment? What are the things you want to look out for? Potential threats, places you should approach. I think, I think the same can be said. I'll just speak for myself. I think teaching them how to navigate the mind, right? Something that is to some degree under your control is equally important, right? We experience emotions constantly. Sometimes they can be helpful. Oftentimes they're not. And teaching them how to manage those internal experiences, I think, gives them the best chance of being successful. So there's a whole science out there, you know, for, for, for a long time, the mind, emotions, it was totally shrouded in mystery. And people didn't like to really talk about what was going on in their head. It was a very private experience. And it was, it was not really an objective topic of study. But we have tools that we've developed over the past 50 or so years, newer tools more recently that have transformed what we know about emotions and how they work and how they're processed in the brain. And, and increasingly, our understanding of the brain is becoming akin to our understanding of other organs of the body. And so teaching kids about how all that works, super important. So I talk to my kids about the voice in their head. What does it mean to talk to yourself, right? What is it, why, why sometimes before an exam, do you have anxiety? Does that mean that something's wrong? Actually, like the data would show that a little blip of anxiety before a consequential moment is useful for performance. I can tell you that I give lots of presentations uh, in a former life. These presentations were always in person, not via Zoom. And um, sometimes, uh, you know, I, I would just not feel anything. And other times I'd get some butterflies in my stomach. The moments in which I didn't feel anything, those are probably the least successful performances, right? Because that I didn't have that emotional signal that was cueing me to really up my game. When I show up and, and, and there's a technical issue, right? The computer's not working. The organizers are, are oh, I'm so sorry. You know, we, this never happens. And I'm saying, it's a, no, no problem. Like this is, this is the energy that I need that's gonna make this even be more successful. So what I'm doing there is I'm reframing how I'm thinking about any butterflies I'm experiencing, right? This is actually gonna be useful for me. It's not gonna be destructive. That research shows can be really useful for facilitating performance, right? You think of the butterflies in your stomach instead as a threat that's gonna sink you, not good. It's a challenge that's gonna make you better, really good. Those are lessons I teach to my kids and they're lessons I think will serve them well. It's huge. Before we started our conversation today, you were having some troubles getting on Zoom. And it's interesting as that was going on, I had so much chatter in my mind, right? The first one being, is he going to show up? Um, oh no, is the Zoom link working? You know, did I go into the Google calendar and make sure that he's not on the Google link because Google has figured out how to automate that unless you exit out. I'm also texting with my wife and saying, hey, we need to test the Zoom link more and make sure that it's as simple for people to come on the podcast as possible. So that's actually an action item that maybe we can, we can do in the future to make this a more seamless experience. So I, like for me, that's completely relevant. Um, and I think we've all felt no anxiety or chatter or anxiety and feeling it in our, our belly or our, our fists or our shoulders. Uh, for you, I'm curious, you just mentioned speaking. So I've got you as a speaker. I've got you as a writer. I got you as a researcher. I've got you as a teacher. Let's leave the personal side out of it um, because you even reference in the book, you know, being done with the book and now getting to spend more time with your family, which is spectacular. And I understand that as well because books can be consuming. But for you, when do you feel most alive? Is it speaking? Is it writing? Is it researching? Is it teaching? Where you can add another piece to the professional barrel there that I might be missing? Uh, you know, it's a great question. Um, I think I feel alive in different ways in those different um, pockets of experience. Uh, it's incredibly energizing to be in front of a, a room of people to be sharing ideas, 
both lecturing, but also having conversations. I find that just incredibly energizing. Um, but there's also something to just going for a walk around the neighborhood and thinking about a new project or question that is on my mind and, and, and just kind of trying to take that to the end point and then coming back and sitting down in front of the computer and say, you know, doing a lit review, hey, what do we know about this topic? And then talking to students and colleagues about ideas and, and looking at data. That's really exciting in a, in a discovery sense, like we're, we're trying to figure out, solve this really challenging puzzle, which is the human mind. Like that's exciting too. Um, you know, writing, um, writing was probably in general, uh, I, <laughs> the most challenging in some ways, uh, because when you find the sweet spot with writing, it's really sweet, but, but, you know, there's a lot of back editing and, 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 and toiling to get to that point. But one of the things I love about my job is that there are so many different facets to it and what, and each facet has its both positives and negatives. And so some of the negatives are inevitable studies that don't work, paragraphs that are hard to write, presentations that don't have, you know, a fit with the audience. But I do my best to try to minimize those negatives and, and remain in the positive space. And, and what I've learned is that the longer I'm in this business, the better equipped I'm able to kind of steer my experience in that, in that domain. I, I, I should mention parenting. <laughs> I, of course, love, love parenting, except when it's, it goes to the negative space. So um, so I love all the fun stuff, but maybe not, um, maybe not the, the less fun punishing stuff. It's a damn hard job <laughs> and, a tough one. and talk about never figuring it out. It's like endless. Just when you think you're like, okay, I'm good. Help get humbled real quick. It's interesting. As I hear you talk, you have such nuance to your answers and you appreciate context and the power of when, and I almost, when I wrote my book, I almost named it when, and then Dan Pink came out with his book and his when was all about timing. It wasn't about when should we be this way and when should we be that way? Or this idea of it depends because it depends when we need to be this way and it depends when we need to be that way. And so context and nuance to me is one of the challenges I have with the research in psychology is that oftentimes we don't take into account the context of when introspection is useful and when it is debilitating. And I even growth and fixed mindset to me, it's like, yes, growth mindset, great for learning and great for us to develop. But the idea that I am good at speaking or I am good at um, teaching or basketball, like that fixed mindset to me, actually can serve us because it can free us up to just execute and to believe in ourselves. You talk about belief a lot in the book with placebos. So I'm curious for you being a researcher and being in the lab, how much conversation is there about when and context and when something serves us and when something hinders us? Because in my, from my lens, it's a next, it's a next level that psychology still needs to take into account is that, yes, yeah, sometimes something can be really helpful and sometimes it can be harmful depending on the context of the thing that we're doing. The last thing I'll say, and then I'll get your opinion on this, introversion and extroversion for me, like that is a massive piece. You talked about going for a walk and being in your head and, and loving that, but then also giving a speech and feeling alive then. I, that resonates with me because there are times when I'm alone and I am so happy to be in nature and not be around anyone, but People that know me would absolutely describe me as an extrovert. So anyway, back to the question, which is this idea of when, this idea of context as it relates to research and psychology, how are we doing um, as a field and how would you think that could improve in the future? Well, I, so first of all, you're preaching to the choir. Um, I, I completely agree. And in fact, the, the reason, um, so the way I end the book and, and what i have always believed and, and mentioned in all my presentations is that um, there's a toolbox of skills that exists for helping us manage our mind. And what I can tell you, I can tell you how these individual tools work, what they are, how they work. What I can't tell you is what combination of tools is going to work best for you and the different kinds of situations you experience in your life that require them. 
different tools work for different people in different situations. So I think from the science point of view, we've done a fairly good job of identifying specific tools. What we haven't yet done is figured out that context question. And the context isn't just coming from the situation, but also the person, right? So how does the person interact with the situation? I think this is a, a key challenge that um, there are signs that, that scientists are, are starting to go in that direction. Now, we're starting to do this in our own work. We've looked at how different tools work for different people in different situations. I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, I think there's a tendency to oversimplify, not just, I think the scientists are often clear in their papers that, hey, we're looking at this thing in a particular context, but then the tool is applied broadly across the board without the disclaimers that I just gave. And I think that can be problematic. And so that requires a change in how we think about things. Uh, you mentioned the marshmallow task earlier, the delay of gratification task. So the, the guy who invented that was my, my mentor in graduate school. His name is Walter Michelle. And believe it or not, the marshmallow task wasn't his greatest claim to fame. It was a big one. But he also, um, several, about 50 years ago, published this damning critique of how we think about personality. And it goes back to your introversion, extroversion comment. And the whole idea was, look, many people think about personality as though there are these fixed sets of traits. Let's say there are five of them. And, um, you know, uh, Brian, you're, you're an extroverted guy. You're pretty open and uh, a little neurotic. Let's say, let's say that's the profile. Uh, I speak from, by the way, I'm just pulling that out from anywhere. So I, I don't know how well that characterizes you. And if you look at actually like how well those different traits, like, so, okay, that's your signature of personality. If we look at you across different situations, do you consistently act in an erotic extroversion in an open way? And it turns out not so much, right? So what Walter found is it really depends on the situation. So you could take someone like me, when I am with um, people I know, I'm consistently extroverted. But when I'm with strangers, I'm consistently introverted. So without taking context into account, we lose out on, on our ability to really understand people's personality in a fine grained way. I will say one final thing. This is why when people say to me or someone else, hey, you have no self-control, I stop, I say, well, do you really mean that? Because I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense. Maybe I don't have a whole lot of self-control when it is, you know, 10 o'clock at night and I'm hungry and there are cookies within reach. I'll concede that the cookies are in my belly in that situation. But you know what? Like I was able to, to, to muscle through college and graduate school and tenure uh, if their stakes are high, I could go without sleep. Like, I think I've got pretty good self-control in other contexts. So this is all about the context. And I think it is a very important issue. Well, and maybe I want to eat the cookie. Like we live once and, you know, I worry about our society reading about tools and techniques and then trying to hack their way through life. I'm going to journal for 20 minutes a day, then I'm going to read for 30 minutes a day, then I'm going to meditate for 30 minutes a day, then I'm going to exercise for an hour, then I'm, uh, you just like run out of time. And this happened to me, I was med I was in a decent meditation practice. And I remember my son, like wanted my attention. And I was like, No, I'm meditating. <laughs> and then it hit me, I was like, wait, I'm meditating so that I can be present for my son. Why don't I just be present for my son right now? And I worry about the rigidness of some of the stuff that exists in our society. Um, and I'm not anti-routine and ritual. And I think the distinction between ritual and superstition is also important because if it's a superstition, it's something I have to do in order for something to happen. If it's a ritual, it's like, hey, this is my routine, but we have to have some flexibility there and some agility. And let's talk about the pandemic because to me, the pandemic is a perfect example of if you're not agile now, it's going to be a, a tough go because this thing changes on us. People are telling you what you can do, what you can't do. And I was actually curious to get your perspective because you published a study in 2015 that the more time people spent passively on Facebook, the more envy they experienced 
and the worse they felt. And so after I read that, I went online and and looked this up and uh, there was a significant increase in the average time US users spent on social media in 2020, uh, 65 minutes daily compared to 54 minutes um, the year before and 56 minutes the year before, so 2019 and 2018. So I started thinking about this after I read your book, which is, oh, wow, over the last year and a half, we've all talked about mental health and loneliness and a lot of the challenges that have come up, social anxiety, what it's doing to our kids and to the adults. But social media, I'm thinking like, what are people doing with their extra time? Yeah, they're probably spending more time. And then there's an added layer to that is if you are more conservative when it comes to what you're doing and who you're interacting with, and maybe you're more shut down than others, you're on Instagram or Facebook and your friends in Italy or your friends in Florida or your friends somewhere else having fun and you're at home with your family. <laughs> um, like it can create a fear of missing out, I think. So I'd be curious to get your thoughts if your lab is studying social media and, and, and obviously you were interested in that in 2015 or any other insights that you all have seen over the last year and a half living in this pandemic world that we've all been living in. All right. Well, um, lots of great questions here. So let me say with the pandemic, I think the pandemic is in many ways, it's the perfect, you know, chatter storm, right? Because we, we know that feelings of uncertainty um, and not being in control of things, a lack of control drive this experience of chatter, worrying and ruminating. And, and that's what the pandemic has given us. And we've seen rates of chatter in the form of anxiety and depression increase significantly. Uh, 30% increases last time I checked. So I think there's a lot more need to understand what the tools are that people can use to manage it. Um, the good news is we have some understanding of what those tools are. So that's good. Um, so I think though this, these are trying times. With respect to social media, um, we actually recently just published this big review of the entire social media literature looking at how it impacts well-being. And the take home from my point of view is this. I think of social media as a new environment that we spend a lot of time interacting in, more so each year. Uh, environments themselves aren't bad or good. It depends on how we interact with those environments. And so what I think is so useful is we've now begun to amass evidence that tells us, hey, here are ways of interacting with social media that might not be so good for you and other people. And here are ways that can be kind of harmful. So a couple of examples, using cyberbullying to just express your emotions, your negative emotions in an unfiltered and hurtful way, not so good, you know, can lead to things like cyberbullying and trolling. Um, passively scrolling through social media, that's like walking in some ways through a minefield um, in the sense that, sure, some of the content that you're exposed to isn't gonna have any impact, but what happens, Brian, when you come across someone who is very relevant to you, a peer, same life stage, right? You're going through the motions together, but they're just doing better than you on every single dimension. They're making a little bit more, more awards. They're looking better. Their kids are, I mean, it's pretty, there's, there's a lot of research which gives you an answer to what's going to happen. You're going to feel envious and, and that's going to make you feel worse. So you don't know when that's going to come up in your feed. So it can be a bit like Russian roulette in that sense. Um, are there healthy, healthy, helpful ways of using social media? Absolutely. It allows us to stay connected. It gives us the opportunity to give support to other people, to get support. So, you know, if you think about the past 10 years of social media research, in my mind, we're just trying to understand what the hell this environment is, what it consists of, and what are the big levers that push our emotions in different ways? What I think the next 10 years is going to be about is trying to understand how we can skillfully navigate these networks in ways that make them work for us rather than against us. And that's a big question that I hope, um, I hope like we devote a lot of research to, to addressing. It's even more complex because what is helpful for us and what is harmful. So I'll give an example. I have someone that I've followed on social media who is very supportive of the insurrection at the Capitol. And it was hard for me to watch. I live in Washington, D.C. This is my home. Honestly, I felt like those people were attacking my home and attacking my country. And um, the chatter that was going on in my head that day was significant. 
And yet I decided not to unfollow him because he represents a portion of this country. And so I want to make sure I'm not just living in a bubble of things and information that is just what I believe in. And, and so, but so when do I unfollow and when do I say, Hey, this is a perspective that maybe I, I need to be aware of. Yeah. You were about to say something. Well, I think that gets us into another, another facet of social media, which is a really important one, this idea of echo chambers and, um, you know, exposing us to only some kind of news, which can polarize us further. And we know how destructive polarization can be. I think the, the key here is to be strategic in how we interact with social media. Uh, I, am tr- I, I try to be incredibly strategic with how I interact with these technologies. You know, I, I succumb sometimes to just scrolling, I think like many of us, but, but in most cases I'm in there to share information with others, um, to, to get a pulse on what different groups are thinking about. And I think if you approach social media, let's say you approach your Twitter feed, which maybe consists of people on both sides of the political aisle as an opportunity to be exposed to different ideas. I think that can be really useful. There are many people I know, and I've done this myself, like I will, I will watch MSNBC and Fox because I want to know what the terrain looks like, not just one side of things. And so as long as you are aware going into this environment, what your goals are, I think that um, it could be really useful. I think it gets more tricky if you just haphazardly navigate the space, then I think there are opportunities for it to influence you um, in ways that you may not want. Yeah. my men- One of my mentors used to say, do you have this story or does the story have you? And adding some intention to what we're intaking, I think is key. One of the things that I think many of us have been consuming is, is the show Ted Lasso. And in the show Ted Lasso, uh, for those that aren't familiar, it's a former college football coach who goes over to England and is now a premier league soccer coach. And, you know, he has a sign up in the locker room that just says believe. And that sign becomes a big part of the show. And now on Twitter, which is where I like to play most of the time from a social media standpoint, I am seeing coaches of division one programs, just putting the sign believe in their locker room. You talk about placebos in the book and the power of just believing something to be true and how that impacts us physiologically and psychologically talk about belief and how you think about belief for organizations and for people and what they should know about the power of belief. I think the power of belief is one of, one of human beings, superpowers. It is our, you know, the beliefs that we hold channel the way we experience the world, not just subjectively, but as the research I talk about in the book indicates like our beliefs can influence how our body responds, you know, our, our physiological states. There are limits to the effect that beliefs can have on us, but they're pretty extreme, actually. Um, so we know that you can believe yourself into experiencing less depression, less anxiety, less severe headaches, fewer GI problems, even less severe Parkinson's symptoms. Um, so how does this all work? Uh, basically, Here's how, here's how I think about all this. Um, beliefs are kind of, we have to find back doors oftentimes into manipulating our beliefs. And the reason is this, we experience lots of negative emotions in our lives. And I fundamentally believe that all emotions are useful. They serve a function. Like we talked about anxiety before. That's a cue that tells us, hey, we need to prepare for a potential threat in our environment. And you could come up with the functionality of all these different negative emotions that we experience. Scientists have done that. What makes negative emotions useful is the fact that they are negative. Experiencing something negative grabs our attention and prepares us to interact with the world like very, very quickly. If you could just give a person the ability to turn off all of their negative emotions, they probably would because we don't like neg- feeling negative, right? We're motivated to not feel negative. And so if you had total control over how to think yourself out of any problem, 
we would just never experience anything negative and we would be worse off as a result because then you never have the anxiety before the big big talk the the cringe of regret when you did something bad that cues you to learn from your mistakes so instead what we've had to do so there are there are safeguards in terms of our ability to tap into this belief system to move it around to impact how we feel it's kind of like when you go into a shower right like you have the ability to turn the temperature up really hot if you like a hot shower, but there's a safety, like at least on our shower, there's a little button. You've got to press the button to have it go all the way. There's a valve that prevents you from doing that, that says, hey, think twice before you do this. And I think our beliefs are a similarly difficult, hard nut to crack, but we've identified ways of harnessing these beliefs that can be useful at times. So. It's an incredible tool, but it's an elusive tool as well that we need to figure out how to master. You mentioned earlier that you wrote this book so that it wouldn't just be stuck in a lab, that this research would get out and make an impact. We both are are parents and you talk about schools. It's 20 years from now, so it's 2041. What are our schools doing as it relates to teaching tools and techniques around chatter? Well, I think that we're, we are seeing like an increase in, in curricula that are sensitive to teaching about social and emotional phenomenon. So that's a great, that's great news. Um, we ourselves are involved in a pretty big project working with uh, over 10,000 students, an entire school district in Georgia, where we've developed a curriculum, 14 lessons that teach people, teach high school kids about the tools that exist for managing their emotions in the mind. And what we're gonna be doing starting in January is rolling this curriculum out and then looking to see what impact it has on students relative to a control condition. So can students learn this information when it's in a curriculum format? We have pretty good reason to believe that they will be able to do that. But more importantly, do they benefit from doing so? Does it impact their achievement levels, their relationships, their their health? And so we're really excited to to look at that. It's interesting, one of the big, findings, as I mentioned at the beginning, was the power of third-person self-talk. And I think a lot of us, when we hear LeBron James or Serena Williams or Ronaldo, pick your athlete, um, or a musician like Kanye, whoever it might be, we just think narcissistic tendencies. And yet you sort of back up this idea that no, when when they're talking to the third person, they're giving themselves distance um, and it allows them perhaps to retain their confidence and their belief in themselves. Can you talk about third-person self-talk and, and how you see it, how you use it, and how you think about it? Sure. So, you know, when we experience chatter, we often lack distance. We're totally zoomed in on the problem in a very tunnel vision-like way. If we go back to something we talked about earlier, one of the reasons why we're often better at giving advice to other people than ourselves is because we lack distance and objectivity when we're focused on our own problems. What language and more specifically what using your name or distant self-talk does for us, it gives us some distance. When we use our name, that, that turns on the mental machinery for, for talking about ourselves, giving ourselves advice like we, we would give advice to another friend. And one of, we know that people are, we're, we're much better at advising others, right? Like, you know, think of the things you say to yourself. Would you ever say that to one of your best friends or clients? I'm guessing probably not. Um, and so using your own name to work through a problem, it puts you into this coaching mode that we find can be very useful. Uh, I don't think you necessarily want to use distant self-talk in front of other people out loud. There's no, no reason to do that. When we've studied this in the lab, we, we typically study it occurring silently. So we ask people who are under stress, hey, try to work through your feelings, get to the bottom of them using your name, give yourself advice. All right, Ethan, how are you going to do this? And I can say that this is my first line of defense when I'm experiencing chatter. First thing I do is I start trying to coach myself using my, my own name. And, and it, it consistently does have a, a beneficial effect for me. So, um, so I always encourage people to try it. If it works, great. And if not, move on to another tool. I want to close by just focusing on you a little bit like you just did but as it relates to routine and ritual. So you talk about every morning, you take a thyroid pill. I do as well. You brush your teeth. I do as well. And then you drink a cup of tea. And I don't know if it's green tea, but I drink green tea every single morning. So we have that in common. Uh, What other routines and rituals help you uh, show up and and help you uh, do well? 
before before I, I have like a big presentation, I will um, I'll I'll listen to one of three or four different songs, kind of pump up songs. I will repeat a kind of personal mantra in my head, something I used to say to myself uh, before sporting events in high school. Would you uh, mind sharing it, Ethan? <clears throat> the mantra? Yeah. Uh, absolutely not. It's very <laughs> private. It's um, like transcendental meditation. You can't, you yeah, can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you know, there are limits here. There are limits. <laughs> I, I've revealed my playlists and others, but the mantra is that's a personal one. Um, it is true. TM, you can't share that. So I'll reveal, I'll, I'll repeat that. And then I will, um, um, and then I'll like, you know, pound my fist into my hand and, and I do it. And that's just a little ritual I've developed and it, it serves me well. Um, and so I would, you know, and, and that's for performance, but I have lots of rituals. We have family rituals that, that we engage in. And, um, I, you know, I think really quick, rituals are an ancient chatter fighting tool. Um, cultures around the world prescribe them for helping people deal with difficult chatter provoking times. In current, in the, you know, current, times i think rituals often get a bad rap because they're they're associated with things like obsessive compulsive disorder um rituals can like any tool be taken to an extreme you don't you know a hammer can be the source of of beauty building a house or a massive destruction so i think it's important for listeners to realize you can take any tool to an extreme but um in the right dose dosage rituals can be really helpful and you mentioned family so just look uh this is selfish from my perspective as I have two, two young kids, but a lot of my clients and a lot of the listeners struggle with when they're with their family, maybe they're thinking about work and when they're at work, maybe they're thinking about their family. And so for you, when you're home with your family um, and it's family time, is there anything you do to make sure that the chatter is not overwhelming you and, and distracting you from uh, your, your kids? Well, you know, I think it is, you know, maintaining the balance between work and private is always, is always challenging. I think it's even more so for me, we're speaking from, from my office at home. Um, my profession is such that I'm all, I, I'm, I'm, I'm working usually, you know, I, sometimes I'm doing family stuff in the middle of the day and other times I'm doing work stuff at night. So I don't have the same boundaries that a lot of folks do. Um, I'm certainly trying to, I, I'm cognizant of, spending as much time as possible with my family, but I also try not to beat myself up too much about when the work is taking over. Sometimes the work doesn't take over and I'm, I'm, I'm with my family, I think a lot more so than the average parent and other times less. And, and I'm committed to just kind of like riding that wave. Uh, sleep is similar for me. Sometimes I get a wonderful eight hours of sleep. Other times I don't, but I don't beat myself up about it, right? I, I try to just, I recognize that, look, when there's a lot going on at work, it's okay if I'm thinking about that at the dinner table and, and I'll share it with my family. I'll get them to weigh in on it. They'll usually tell me to shut up, but you know, um, but it's an opportunity to draw them in. So. What works for me is I don't a try to be incredibly rigid about the the line I draw between the two spheres, um, and number two, if I find one one sphere encroaching on the other in a way that isn't optimal, I just don't try to beat myself up about it, and instead I try to be proactive and, and manage it instead. Ethan, th this has been really enjoyable, and the reason I think it's enjoyable is. You have done so much research and uh, really impressive stuff. And yet, when I hear you talk, you are very approachable and very honest. And I think a lot of times people only share that Instagram version of themselves. And I think it does a disservice to all of us. It's interesting, as I was thinking about social media earlier, I went to my wife and I joke that maybe we'll start social media that only shows all the bad stuff going on. And mm. we, this came about when we were on vacation with our daughter, who at the time was two um, and was just a menace and just ruined our vacation. But we've got pictures of us in front of 
beautiful blue waters and smiling. And we go, we could post this picture and no one would see the crying on the airplane, the no sleep, that we couldn't have a meal together um, because it was just that she clung to my wife the entire time. And so maybe together we'll go into that together and we'll just create a social media platform that only shows the challenging times. Yeah. Everyone takes all these great pictures of their family looking amazing and then the camera's off and then all hell breaks loose. Um, but this has been real and honest and I appreciate how flexible you are and, and, and how honestly um, practical you are in bringing this stuff up and also giving yourself the grace when you're not maybe doing the things that you spend your life's work working on. If people want to learn more about you and, and what you're up to, and obviously they can get chatter anywhere books are sold, highly recommend people do that. Um, I, I don't always say that when I have authors on the podcast. So there are people that I love having on this podcast who I wouldn't say you have to go get their book. I would say if you're interested in, in this topic and really all humans should be, uh, go check out Chatter. It is not a long, ridiculous read. It is a highlighter read. So for me, at least, I've got tons of highlights in the book. Um, there's just a lot of research, uh, really good stuff, but it's not overdone and it's not overkill. But Ethan, if they want to find out more about you and your work, where can they where can they do that? Well, first of all, thank you for those incredibly, incredibly kind words. Um, means a lot. And um, this was a great conversation. Uh, if people want to learn more, they can go to my website, www.ethancross with a K, K R O S S dot com. Learn about the book, learn about me, learn about our research um, with lots of links there. So check it out. Awesome. You can get all of these podcasts at strongskills.co slash podcast. Uh, the other place I like to play is Twitter, as I mentioned earlier. Ethan, you're also on Twitter um, as well. Uh, your handle is. Uh, I, I believe it is just Ethan Cross, Ethan underscore Cross. Correct. And LinkedIn's the other place that I like to play at Brian Levinson. So now that we talked about the negative effects of social media, everyone can check out both of us there. Ethan, this has been a blast. Looking forward to continuing to follow your work. And thanks for all that you are continuing to do for the field of psychology. I appreciate you. Thanks so much, Brian. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I think the power of belief is one of human beings' superpowers. It is our, you know, the beliefs that we hold channel the way we experience the world. Not just subjectively, but as the research I talk about in the book indicates, like our beliefs can influence how our body responds, you know, our, our physiological states. 